0: Welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm Ben Edwards, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, William S. Boyd School of Law. My guest is Hilary J. Allen, Associate Professor of Law at American University, Washington College of Law. We will discuss her article, Driverless Finance, which is forthcoming in the Harvard Business Law Review. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Ben. Hello, hello, glad to have you. So thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. I've been reading your work uh, for a few years now, and it's had a huge influence on how I think and write uh, about these issues and how I just see what's, what's happening in the space. This, this is a paper you presented at Law and Society in Washington, D.C. recently, and I had the, the pleasure of seeing you present it. Uh, and I'm so glad you have the vision and the foresight to be thinking about these issues and talking about them now. When we still have the time to do things. So you, you framed the issue really well with you know, the term driverless finance. Like, Why did you pick this term? What are, you, what are we talking about here?
1: Well, first of all, thank you for your, your kind words, Ben. Um, if you've been following my work for years, you've seen me trying to scare people from years about all the different things that could send our financial system into a tailspin. Um, and the thing that I'm... What, and you're right. What? And you are Right. Well, I mean, hopefully I'm wrong, but I fear that I am right. And the thing that is keeping me up at night at the moment is this concept of driverless finance, as I call it. So what I mean by that is sort of the next iteration of uh, financial decision-making that's made not really by humans using computers, but by artificial intelligence, the most sophisticated autonomous algorithms that we're seeing evolve now, that, that these are going to sort of quantitatively, sorry, qualitatively change the way that financial decision-making is b- being made. And I use the term driverless finance to draw um a a parallel with driverless cars. And it's not just a gimmick. The the thing that um, people who are regulating driverless cars are most worried about are what the tech people call edge cases, right? Unanticipated events. And when we're talking about financial stability and financial crises, the thing that we're most worried about are what economists call tail events, right? And they're the same kind of things. They're things that are unanticipated. And all of this technology that's being developed now works better than humans most of the time. But when it comes across uh, these edge cases or these tail events, it's incredibly unpredictable how it will react. And it right. could do so in ways that are just, I mean, beyond the pale. We don't know what could happen.
0: Right. So so we, we actually have these driverless cars on the streets of Las Vegas right now. And I, I don't know if they, they picked our jurisdiction because we, we tend to
1: make things freedom.
0: Legal. Uh, or, you know, and sort of, sort of there's it's a very you know, light regulatory burden in the state uh, or because we produce a lot of edge cases uh, in the sense that there's all sorts of unpredictable things coming down the streets here. Um, but we, when we think about you know, mapping that over to finance. What's the what's the worst case scenario with the driverless car? Like what are, what are we talking about in terms of damage?
1: So, I mean, I think the thing that everybody is afraid of, of is, you know, that there could be a car crash and a pedestrian could be killed or a driver could be killed, you know, or worst case, a few car pileups. And huh. I've been in classrooms talking about technology and regulation where I've asked, you know, people to put up their hands and say, who'd be willing to drive in or ride in a driverless car? And I'm usually the only person to put their hand up, which may have something to do with the fact that I actually can't never learn to drive. So I think these sound amazing. Um, but. You know, most people are scared about these, but people are not scared about driverless finance. And I think there's sort of a there's such a visceral picture that we get when we think about car crashes. Right, but That's then, like a plane crash. It, exactly, but but then think about what happens when the financial system goes down. It may seem a little sort of more abstract, but if you think back to the financial crisis in two thousand seven two thousand and eight. I mean, worldwide economic devastation, and that does translate into loss of life. I mean, the, if oh, yeah. we, there were medical studies saying that the, the rate of heart attacks went through the roof. The rate of suicides went through the roof. I mean, this is something we should be terrified of.
0: We should. We're, we're, we're In some sense, we're a little bit statistically blind. Like you, 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 if you increase the, the, the risk in the environment uh, and it's spread out, Uh, people treat it differently or or think you should regulate differently than if it's a a car crash you can see.
1: Um, I think that's really right and you know there's all kinds of issues um, you know from a legal perspective of showing causation when it comes to financial crises you know whose fault was it and then you know to, to sort of jump into later in the program it's going to be a lot harder to show who caused the problem when we start delegating decision making to algorithms? But back to your point, because it's sort of diffuse, it's not just one actor; it's a complex system that's malfunctioning. Um, it, I think it is harder to get people to focus on it, to worry about it, to try and develop regulatory solutions. But I think that's really short-sighted, given that the harm that can be caused—it's
0: well, it's enormous. So, so the, the risks here seem to be expanding. Uh, because we're seeing more and more financial services become essentially driverless like what what areas are, is it expanding into right now like what are we what are we seeing
1: so um, a lot of different areas. I think, you know, when most people think about algorithms and financial decision making, they're probably thinking about high frequency trading, which was, you know, the subject of Michael Lewis's book, Flash Boys, everybody got really excited about it. But that's almost sort of passe in terms of what we're talking about now. Most of the algorithms that were used for high frequency trading were predictive in the sense that they were actually oh. programmed by a programmer to do a certain thing. What we're seeing now is artificial intelligence, particularly this type of artificial intelligence they call machine learning, where they literally just give the algorithm a set of data and say, you know, have at it, draw what lessons and conclusions you will from the data that we're providing to you. So in terms of where that's being applied, um, people are very excited about using it in the context of robo-advisory. Right. So, um, robo advisory is a sort of an umbrella term. And I should say, with, with all these things in fintech, none of these terms or definitions are precise. People have different right. things they need. Well. Oh, yeah. So it does get a little confusing, but it, you can think of robo advice as sort of an umbrella term for any situation where a computer is giving advice to a consumer about a financial product. Um, so, you know, we see it in insurance, we're starting to see it in banking, but it's perhaps most um, noticeable in the field of financial advice in terms of investing. Um, and so robo investment is a term that you'll often hear um, like a
0: wealth front, betterment. I think they have
1: Exactly, yep,
0: those ones. Wealth front and betterment they're fifteen billion between those two firms under assets under management. So they're 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 getting bigger and bigger and they're growing every day.
1: Yeah, and they have ambitions to replace, you know, general financial human financial advisors. Um, and in many respects, you know, that there are great things about them. They are, you know, much cheaper and much more efficient. So in terms of accessibility, you know, that 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 is great.
0: Basis points. I, th- I think I think they're at they're at fifteen basis points right. So so point one five percent. Whereas if, if you want, you know, someone from Wells Fargo to manage your money, they're going to charge you two and a quarter
1: percent of your assets under management. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And so, you know, that is, you know, at least on the face of it, a really good thing. And that's another, I think, reason why people have not engaged with the problems of driverless finance, because the upside seems so great, right, democratizing the financial services. But let's think a little more about what it means, if we're going to have uh, an algorithm, particularly a machine learning algorithm, artificial intelligence, decide what individual investors should invest in okay so
0: so so what happens if so so it's one thing if this is happening with a small percentage of the market i mean you know 17 billion dollars is an enormous amount of money but relative to the i think like seven and a half trillion we have in 401ks right now it's not that much Um,
1: And I think that's an important point. And again, another reason why people aren't worried about driverless finance too much at the moment is because of scale. You're right. This is not a huge portion of the market. But I think the trend lines are that it will become increasingly important and even the Wells Fargo's of the world will start to use this technology. And so what this technology means in the sort of the robo investment context is that you know, an algorithm will be given voluminous sets of data about market movements, um, and it will decide what is a good portfolio based right. on the, the, those data sets. Sorry, sometimes I say data, sometimes I say data. I grew up in Australia. It's very confusing.
0: <laughs> it happens. <laughs>
1: um, all right. But let's think about the the data or the data that we're using, right? Now. Most of the data that's around in the world has only been around for a couple of years. Right. So if, you know, and, and and these robo-investment services provide themselves, pride themselves on not just looking at strict market data, but they're looking at all kinds of data about, you know, how humans behave, et cetera, et cetera. But if their data only goes back a couple of years, the data has only ever seen essentially an economic expansion.
2: Right.
3: has
1: no idea what a downturn looks like, let alone a crisis. Right. So you have to query how accurate this, you know, these, these investment, um, the, the advice that comes out of this, these um, robo-advisory uh, firms is going to be. And even if they're right, just think about the correlation implications of this. Instead of having you know, a bunch of human financial advisors making decisions about what people should invest in, when they should buy and when they should sell. We have just a few algorithms, right? It's all about economies of scale. We have a few algorithms making these decisions and sure they may adjust portfolios depending on people's risk characteristics, but still they're going to sort of see people as a sort of a monolithic uh, or people into buckets, I think. And so, we're going to see much more monolithic um, activity in the market. So the bubbles and the busts that we have seen in the past may be dwarfed by futures bu- future bubbles and busts when we have just a few algorithms making all the recommendations about when to buy and when to sell.
0: Right. So if, if, if these robo firms eventually end up with control over just an enormous amount of assets, even if they're wrong on the merits it would be so hard to take a meaningful short position against them and, and change the way the market looked in a bubble uh, just, just, simply because of the amount of assets they'll control.
1: I think that's right. You know, and if we bring up Michael Lewis, again, if we learn nothing less from the big short, you know, there, there's very little difference between being um, wrong and having your timing wrong. You can be right at the wrong time and it'll bankrupt you. So, uh, you know, and, and and none of this is predictable. So I don't think, you know short positions are an effective sort of you know, systemic risk hedge right. yeah, against yeah. what these um these robo algorithms are coming up with
0: so if we're i guess if we're concerned about you know wealth concentrations in individual hands we should also be concerned about it concentrating in algorithmic hands
1: exactly you know writ on a larger scale than we could potentially
0: you know imagine so so the the, the ways these things are changing markets it you know, is not just you know potentially narrowing the number of sort of, I guess, can I say cognitive processes going into making trading decisions, but but also the speed with which trading is going to be happening and, and assets are going to be reallocated.
1: Yeah, that's right. I think speed is a real issue. Um, we've already started to see speed being an issue in the high frequency trading context. But as I said, this is a sort of almost next generation. And one place where I'm particularly worried about speed is in the context of smart contracts. So when we talk about sort of smart contracts now as financial assets, we're typically talking about tokens in the ICO world. And, you know, they're the Wild West of finance, you know, the little little crazy um, people are using them to speculate. So again, I don't see any real systemic implications there yet.
0: No, No, we're talking about maybe seven, $8 billion a year in economic activity in that sector.
1: Yeah, it's just not that big. But I, I really think that the more established financial markets will find it hard to resist the siren call of smart contracts. This idea that you could have everything baked into a computer program that doesn't leave any time for intervention. Because again, there are a lot of benefits to that you take away a lot of uncertainty you add a lot of efficiency so I should back up if you're not familiar with smart contracts what these are are basically these are algorithms um, and these are algorithms that are hosted on some kind of blockchain and if they receive instructions um, th- that will actually just carry out the contract so if you say um,
0: let you know I've let, got let new for you so- what, I got an example for you that I, that, I, that, I, that I I want to, you know, check in with you about. So imagine we wanted to make a bet on the outcome of the NHL championship. Uh, so okay. we know.
1: Okay.
3: That, uh,
0: Let's St. go. St. St. Louis won last night. Okay. Uh, and we could, we could, we could set our bet up to where we put the money in the smart contract. And if you bet on St. Louis, you get the money. And if the other team won, uh, you know, I got the money. Okay. And we would, we would. Tie our smart contract to ESPN's website, and so mm-hmm. if ESPN updated and said St. Louis won, you got the money.
1: So in that context, and I like this terminology, the ESPN website would be known as the oracle. Yes.
0: So the oracle, you know, is it's you know whatever result comes from this triggers the smart contract.
3: Mm-hmm. Now,
0: imagine they have an intern uh, entering, you know, the scores, and uh, they. have sort of fat finger or enter the wrong information, and it comes up to the other team one. Uh, the smart contract would trigger, and I would get the money, even though it was a mistake. And how would we unwind that?
1: Well, and, and the, the important thing to note about that is how would you actually get the money? Right. so what this would actually be is that there would be some kind of distributed ledger um, kind of like a blockchain if for those of you familiar with Bitcoin the, you know, the, there are all kinds of distributed ledgers the one that we're using right now for our smart contracts a lot is the ether blockchain but who knows what it will be in the future it's just uh, it's just a, a an accounting ledger that's hosted on you know the cloud effectively right. um, and so on that accounting ledger, there would be a notation that says that you, Ben Edwards, have this in account, and I, Hillary Allen, have this other account. And depending on um, what happens with the oracle, money will transfer to either your account or to my account. And once right. that happens, there is no mechanism for undoing it. So think of the speed at which we'll start to see financial contracts executed if they start to be embodied in this way. Right? They'll be so fast. And if there is a mistake, as you say, if there's an intern, and, and frankly, we shouldn't blame the interns. Lots of us <laughs> lots of yeah, things like
3: this all the time.
1: <laughs> exactly. So let's not so so say a very senior ASPN editor put in the wrong information. So say someone very senior at an Oracle gets the information wrong. Well that's going to um, affect the transaction. And you know, I'm using effect in the EFFECT. Um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to carry out the transaction without any time for human judgment, even if all the parties involved know it was a mistake. Right. There, there's no mechanism for undoing it. Now, we have seen that, in fact, there can be a mechanism for undoing it, but it's unwieldy and it's not how these things are supposed to work. You essentially have to fork the the distributed ledger. You have to create an alternative distributed ledger where that transaction never happened. But you've got to get everybody on board. All the people who are in charge of maintaining that distributed ledger have to get on board to change the transaction. And that can be, in some circumstances, impossible. It may not be possible to identify people or they may be beyond your reach jurisdictionally um, or at the very least, it's going to be time consuming and the damage may already have been done if the transaction has already been carried out.
0: So so for for something that's going to work for, for humans and human society, we're going to need some way to, to fix problems like that as, as things go along. How do, how do we get there? What what, what 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 would be different than what we have right now with sort of the, the Bitcoin protocol?
1: Sure so I think you know the Bitcoin protocol just simply isn't going to work for mainstream transactions. so um, what I've argued for in this paper is that there has to be if if, if we want these um, smart contracts to represent, represent mainstream assets right there has to be some kind of requirement. and Now I'm sort of jumping forward to my my regulatory solutions part of the paper, but there has to be some requirement that any distributed ledger that hosts mainstream financial assets be maintained by people who can be contacted, who will be amenable to undoing the transaction, to forking the distributed ledger if it's clear to everyone that there was a mistake made. And that those people should be able to act on very short notice right? To get it undone. Now, it's not a perfect solution, but it's better than what we currently see. Um, what we currently see with these distributed ledges is that they are by design complicated if you know, or too impossible to change. Right? Right. And then- so their,
0: their immutability is one of the selling points.
1: Exactly. You know, if you think of sort of Bitcoin in, in many respects is a libertarian fever dream, right, that this idea that no one can undo it, no government, no courts, that sort of that was the selling point of the tr- distributed ledger technology. Um, that just doesn't seem to me to be compatible with sort of mainstream financial assets. I think what we'll see is that to the extent that this technology goes mainstream, it will be um, on distributed ledgers that are maintained by more permissioned nodes. But I think the the market itself, the private sector will not require distributed ledgers that can be undone in a way that I think we need them to be able to be undone um, from a regulatory perspective to, to avoid these crises.
0: So, so we have these, these new, you know, distributed ledger, you know, systems that are coming on, and we also have machine learning and artificial intelligence moving assets on these blockchains.
1: Uh, right, they're linked together.
0: <laughs> so, so it's, it's it's the combination of them that potentially you know shifts things. And so, so if we're if we're delegating more and more decisions to these these algorithms, what are the what are the risks here? If we, are we deferring too much?
1: Well, I think so. I mean, part of the problem is that we humans don't have a particularly good track record with uh-huh. um, financial risk management ourselves. So. No, no,
0: no. <laughs> Australia's better, but you know, we on the whole we've had a hard time.
1: It, it's, it's kind of the pot calling the kettle black. But I think these, um, I think you know, this this automation of um, financial decision making will probably actually work better than humans most of the time. Oh yeah. But, Algorithms just don't make sense of the world in the same way we do. And I think when these edge cases, these tail events come up, I think that's when we could start to see really scary things. And, and you know, you could ask me what those scary things are. And the, fa- the fact of the matter is I just don't know.
2: No. Right? We
1: have such a complex system you know, how will they behave? What will they do? That's unpredictable. Right. How will it interact with what other algorithms are doing? That's unknowable. We're in, the, you know, we're in the realm of 90 and uncertainty. Um, and that nighty and uncertainty has made people nervous ab- enough about self-driving cars that they are testing them over and over and over again on the streets of Nevada and in Arizona, you know, and, and um, you know, Silicon Valley, you have the cars driving around. And, and the idea is there that they want to make sure that these um, cars anticipate every event that they can anticipate. Right, And there's no effort being made in that same way for um, finance. So I think we need to have more imagination, honestly, right. about about what could go wrong, I think we need to start running sophisticated simulations of what could go wrong. To and again, these won't be perfectly predictive, but just at least give us some kind of idea of the ways in which these things could um, could interact. And then if we get some sort of simulations that we can sort of package into a data set these kind of things are the things that machine learning algorithms need to to be exposed to, right. right? We don't want them to just think, well, the last few years were all well and good, so nothing's ever going to go wrong. They need to be exposed to historical problems, but not just historical problems because the crises in the past didn't involve autonomous algorithmic decision-making. Right. Um, so I think we're going to need to do war games and simulations and things like that to create at least some kind of a data set that evinces the possibility of things going sort of horribly wrong in a world where much of the decision-making is made by algorithms.
0: Right. So, so in the past, when we have financial crises, uh, it seems like there's a playbook of sorts. Uh, Some, some fellow in a suit, uh, it's almost always a fellow in a suit um, comes out and talks to the market. Um, You know, some, somebody from the treasury uh, or the fed, will will come out and say things. are they is that a, is that a language that um can can, a, can an algorithm hear that?
1: Yeah, this is a really interesting question. So there's a lot of work that's being done by algorithms on semantics, right? Well, they're sort of learning what words mean, learning to react to words before humans get a chance to to react to words. And there's definitely a lot of interest in sort of what's known as Fed speak. You know, when when someone from the Federal Reserve you know comes out and says something, what do they really mean? And algorithms are trying to learn what they really mean. But even if algorithms get very good at parsing Fed speak on interest rates, for example, you know, small raises or um, you know, lowering interest rates, I'm not sure that they're going to have the opportunity to learn how to respond to the calming words that we hear from our central bankers in a crisis, which have been reasonably effective in lots of circumstances, in at least tamping down on crises. I'm also not sure how algorithms will react to sort of emergency guarantee programs, like bailouts and things like that, you know, will they, you know, Will, will they come down when they see that the Federal Reserve has implemented, you know, a guarantee fund for money market mutual funds or something like that? I really don't know. I, I think, again, because what we're talking about are tail events here, the communications that come from central bankers in those circumstances will, again, be so unusual and bespoke that the algorithms won't have learned how to Sort of respond to them that they are meant to calm down, that things will calm down, and right. perhaps they won't come down in the future. We may have actually lost one of our major weapons to calm the markets after a
0: crisis. So, what what kind of weapons do we have under development? Like, uh, is, our, is our regulatory infrastructure scaling up for this new challenge? Do we have you know people who can who can really code and understand this uh, in the in the regulatory space?
1: No. And this is something that makes me really nervous. And, and, you know, part of it's a resources issue. Um, You know, these people are in demand, you know, if you know how to do artificial intelligence, if you know how to do data science, I mean, you can be paid a significant amount of money and the government isn't really competitive in that space. I, I spoke to a former regulator and asked, you know, what they found were challenges in terms of hiring in this space. And they said, you know the the computer programming ability it's hard to get those people but the data scientists it was impossible that they couldn't afford these people
0: yeah You're so, not going to get that with a gs13
1: no so unless uh, you know unless frankly we as a society commit to this you know and say that we're really worried about this and this is something we're going to invest in then i think this is a real problem and and this isn't just an issue in finance right a- you know across so many different spheres you know health care um you know food production you know things are being um automated and the regulatory state needs to you know beef itself up to a place where it can actually grapple with this another issue again that this is kind of cross-cutting is jurisdictional right you know these new technologies don't fit neatly into the buckets of banking and securities that, you know, that that we're used to. And so a lot of what you're seeing right now in terms of regulators trying to deal with these new technologies is is frankly squabbling over jurisdiction. And, you know, unlike in the past where they often wanted jurisdiction, I often get the sense that no one wants to touch this stuff because it is, you know, too hard and beyond what they sort of see as their typical area of competency. Um, and that's happening not at, just at the national, but at the international level. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I, think, I, I think there's reason to be worried that regulators are not responding to the threats that I've identified.
0: Uh, so it seems like we're at an inflection point or approaching an inflection point. There's, you know, so technology is developing, and the way it develops is going to sort of lock in uh, what our options are in the future. Uh, how, how, do you, how do you sort of direct the development of technology in a way that helps us reduce these risks?
1: So I think you're right about the inflection point. I think if we don't do something very soon, we will have missed our chance. So if I haven't already depressed you enough, I'm, I'm going even further now because there's um, both politi- political economy and technological reasons why now is the time to act. So from a political, uh, political economy perspective, You know, once an industry becomes very established, once major market players have sort of adopted a technology, they don't want to change it. And regulators can find it very difficult to overcome that resistance. Oh, yeah also the technological aspect you know if you are building these machine learning um, algorithms and, and they've learnt from a data set there's no way to go back and correct them or you know tell them to unlearn a particular thing you'd have to start from scratch which again you know contributes to the political economy issue so, so now is the time to act um, and I think what needs to be done although I've got Reasonably little hope that it will be done. And part of what I'm trying to do with this article is to get people, um, worried to try and build some kind of support for, for starting to do this. But regulators really need to be looking at the processes, um, by which these technologies are being created. They need to get in sort of at the beginning and. One of the ways that they could do this um, is potentially being trialed by the, the regulatory sandbox model that we're seeing in some countries. Right. So I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the regulatory sandbox in general, but one good thing about it is that you do have regulators and the industry working together from day one on building a technology. And that kind of partnership is what I think we need right now with these new technologies. So things that I've already talked about. Regulators being there on the ground floor to make sure that any machine learning algorithm is exposed to tail event scenarios or regulators being there on the ground floor making sure that any sort of reputable financial asset that's represented by a smart contract has a circuit breaker built in there or is hosted on a distributed ledger that can be forked reasonably easily. Those kind of things. Um, are what I think we need to see happening right away.
0: Yeah. So, so in finance, there's always this problem of you know, this is a, I'll be gone, you'll be gone. Particularly in uh, you know, trading or the scenarios or with, a, with a bon- a, an annual bonus culture. If you're looking at you know, financial crises as things that happen every decade or so, um, you know, there's I think there's an incentive you know, perhaps for some folks to you know, use some machine learning to put in um, an extraordinarily profitable trading strategy which has enormous tail risk uh, but if they're getting their bonuses and cashing out and leaving the firm before the tail event occurs you know, are, are are they you know is, is it seems like the, the system or you know of the way people make money in this space and then exit it doesn't really take into account the damage that can affect all of us
1: well, that's a, you know, a perennial issue in um, you know, financial industry culture. And, and there are some initiatives that have been um, put in place, particularly by the Dutch National Bank, but also um, the Fed in New York and also the, the FCA in the UK. They're really trying to sort of work on this financial industry culture um, to make people more cognizant of the sort of the systemic impact of their decisions. Um, those are hard fought. Um, battles. I think they're important, but they are hard fought. Trying to get the industry to change its culture, and I don't think algorithms are going to help. Um, right. There's all kinds of um, psychological literature out there on how people sort of can avoid um, any ethics involved with their decision if they can sort of fade the ethics out of their their decision making, um, or they can basically sort of say, "Well, I don't need to behave well because." The algorithm is doing the risk management. So if they can, yeah, if they can use the algorithm to be sort of the responsible agent, they don't have to feel bad about doing things that might hurt the economy at large. So I think the, these hard fought battles to make the financial industry more cognizant of the fact that their risk taking could have outsized externalities for the whole world. Um, I think those are going to be. Set back even further as more and more decision making goes to the algorithms, and so the actual humans who are involved in these in these processes can say, "Well, it wasn't me; it was the algorithm. I'm a good person."
0: Right. <laughs> so, so we 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 just know risks people are are there. People are going to keep taking them, uh, and at some point, crises are going to happen again and again. Uh, how do we get ready for the next one, and then the next one, and the next one, as more and more of these decisions. Uh, move online and become algorithmic?
1: So I guess there's a couple things that I'm, well, obviously I don't have an answer to that or else I I would be an extremely wealthy woman. Um, But I have some sort of thoughts on it. Um, First of all, I think something I'm worried about is that the actual frequency of crises might speed up. Okay. I was talking to a colleague recently and they said, you know, mm-hmm. I think we spend too much time working about financial crises. We may not see another one in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. And I thought, hmm, I'm not so sure about mm-hmm. that. because I think with these um, technological, uh, you know, so something that Isalia Maroma pointed out, which I think is really important, is the faster transactions are, the more room there are, there is for more transactions. And then the more transactions you have, the more opportunities there are for something to go wrong. Yeah. So as we accelerate the financial transacting, I think we're opening up the scope for more things to go wrong, which means I think we're going to start to see um, things being a little more frequent in terms of crises. Um, I'm also worried because our standard playbook, and we've already talked a little bit about this in the um, aftermath of a financial crisis right. is to, you know, Calm the markets, you know, with emergency programs. Lots of money coming in, calming words from from central bankers, and I just don't know how um, algorithms are going to react to that. And frankly, those have been the major playbook for you know over a century. You know, go back to going back to Walter Badgett about how to how to calm people down, and so the 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 ex post, the after the fact calming down that we've relied on for so long may not be effective in the future, which means we have to focus on the harder part, which is the ex ante, which is the how do we make this, the system a little safer from the get-go? And so that's what I would like to see our attentions uh, focused on. And that's why I'm trying to scare as many people as possible about the rise of driverless finance.
0: Well, um, you, you've reached me, and uh, I think we have to keep an eye on this. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: No, thank you, Ben. You're a man of God.
3: future, helping our world move along. He's America's automobile man, marching at the head of the band. He's leading
1: the way to a
2: brighter today and he's doing all that he can. All across America he's found his way to a place in our community. He's always smiling And singing a song about America and living free Helping you travel through this changing world Helping you get on your way He's driving the highways of history Believing in today And he's keeping America
3: moving Keeping America strong Providing the wheels to the future and our world move along He's America's automobile man Marching at the head of the band He's leading the way to a brighter today And he's doing all that he can
2: Some folks think of him only in terms of new cars and weekend sales and next year's models but there's really much more to his story He's a real leader here in our community, he believes in the American way, and he's always one of the first to stand up and speak out about how it can be made even better. Yes, he's America's automobile man, and his business is just about as competitive as they come. I remember when he bought that old vacant lot down on the corner and moved his dealership into that new building he put up. I think you could say that he's made more than a sizable commitment and contribution to our city and the economy here. He has 70 people working for him now, and that's a lot of jobs. Some of his employees have been in the automobile business for over 25 years and probably know more about transportation and its future than a government investigating committee. He's proud of those people, too. Yes, he talks about them every day, just as if they were part of his own family. He's concerned about the role of transportation in America's future. Yes, he's come a long way since Henry Ford started it all, and I think that he can be trusted to keep America moving.
3: America moving, keeping America strong, providing the wheels to the future, helping our world move along. He's America's automobile man, he's a neighbor, he's a friend, he's here to help and he cares about the future, helping our world move along, yeah, he's America's automobile man, he's a neighbor, he's a friend, he's here to help, and he cares about the thing.